Rhonda Byrne is the author of uh, a wildly popular book right now entitled The Secret. I wonder if, you, if you've seen that. Have you seen about it, read about it, heard about it? At this time, it is gaining the attention of so many people. It basically is saying a lot of other things that I'm going to talk about a little bit. But this was written and when she says she stumbled onto truth, secret truth, at the end of 2004. At that time in her life, everything had fallen apart. She said physically, emotionally, financially, she was in total despair. That's when Rhonda's daughter gave her a copy written in 1910 by Wallace Wattles entitled The Science of Getting Rich. Rhonda Byrne writes, something inside of me had me turn the pages one by one and I can still remember my tears hitting the pages as I was reading it. It gave me a glimpse of the secret. It was like a flame inside my heart. And with every day since, it's just become a raging fire of wanting to share all of this with the world. She claims to have traced the concept of this secret back to 3500 BC to the present day. And she says, since I have discovered the secret, every single moment of my entire life has changed. And I am living for the first time. So what's the secret? The secret is the law of attraction. It is the principle that like attracts like. She calls it the most powerful law in the universe that never stops working. She goes on to explain what we do is attract into our lives the things we want. And that's based on what we're thinking and feeling. This principle explains that we create our own circumstances, which means our thoughts And our words are the most powerful things we have here on earth. The truth about the secret is that you do not choose to follow God. You choose to recognize that you are God. You are divine. You are sovereign. Eve, eat of this and you shall be as God doesn't really trouble me that the world panders after that which replaces God and enthrones themselves. We would expect that. The trouble is that this same false teaching is sweeping into the church now for the last many years and it is being repackaged all over again in our own generation. Self-deceived, corrupt teaching heard most often within the prosperity movement of the church whose false teachers have repackaged the old lie that basically you are sovereign with what you say. You speak your own reality into existence. And what you've got to do is just begin talking the truth into existence, whatever that truth may be for you, which is typically wealth and health and everything wonderful. These false teachers are leading people into a misguided, self-centered belief system that corresponds to the lie of the enemy, that people are really, if you evaluate it, gods. They're really gods. They're really sovereign. This is the secret you need to learn that you are, in effect, a god. Let me quote a couple of leading spokesmen. One named Creflo Dollar said this recently, everything produces after its own kind. By the way, you just go on the internet and you read their stuff, okay? I read it off his own site. Horses get horses and dogs get dogs and God produced gods. Y'all didn't hear that, he said. 
Horses produce horses and dogs produce dogs and God produced gods. And then God produced more gods with flesh and then gods with flesh produced gods with flesh until the God of gods with flesh showed up one day and dwelt among the other gods with flesh to demonstrate to the other gods how to have authority over the flesh. This is the history the religious church wants to hide away from you so you don't know who you really are. This is the secret. You are God. Another false teacher by the name of Kenneth Copeland has taught for years the same concept. He said some time ago, and I quote him, you can have whatever you say. Just say it. I want gas in my truck after church. I want gas in my truck. Okay. I'll be asking too much. Now, don't anybody take it and go fill it up. Okay. <laughs> That would ruin everything. (laughs) He says, what you are saying is what you're getting. So if you're living in poverty, change what you are saying. It will change what you have. So discipline your vocabulary and God will be obligated to meet your needs. So now we have become sovereign in what we say and God simply serves us. This convoluted theology is upside down. I was frankly amazed at literally millions within the evangelical church who purchased the prayer of Jabez. Now you're thinking you've gone to meddling, Stephen. No, I don't think he is a false teacher, by the way. He can't be. He graduated from the seminary I did. So I, but whether he intended it or not, people were swept up in that natural instinct to find some secret. To find some special set of words that if I say them, there will be some kind of guarantee to work. The subtle implication that praying that prayer, speaking the same words, would bring me what Jabez got. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no incantation. There is no special prayer. There is no guarantee. There is no secret knowledge that will heal all your diseases and bring global peace and put money in your bank account and and a car in your garage, or at least one that starts. What's tragic to me is that the church, sometimes unwittingly, often softens the soil of the heart for the seed of deception to be received and more easily believed. One false doctrine that is being promoted in the more liberal side of the Protestant church and even the Catholic church is called a course in miracles. And if you could see the lineup of people who say this is the greatest thing, it would shock you. It's gaining more and more a following. A Course in Miracles is a book written by Helen Shookman, a professor at Columbia University who claimed that an inner voice began to tell her uh, that she was going to receive a course in miracles and to write it down. The voice claimed to be Jesus, and so she spent seven years writing down what this voice told her. Basically, the key concept of this teaching is that everybody is divine. Again, the same thing. This is the secret. You are God. And of course, along the way, she got rid of the devil, and she got rid of original sin, and she got rid of consequences and all those other uncomfortable things. Shookman's book went relatively unnoticed for several years until a woman named Marianne Williamson wrote 
her book called A Return to Love, Reflection on the Principles of a Course in Miracles. When Marianne Williamson appeared on Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey praised her book and told her viewers that she had already purchased a thousand copies to give to all her staff and friends. And the book literally took off. It remained at the top of the New York Times bestseller list for months. This new gospel now went mainstream, and this new Jesus, who was being quoted, is now bestselling. Let me give you some of the quotes from that course, supposedly from Jesus. And I quote, A slain Christ has no meaning. The journey to the cross is a useless journey. The name of Jesus Christ is a symbol used for the many names of all the gods to which you pray. The recognition of God is the recognition of yourself. Now, according to what I read just this past week, beginning this past January 1st, 2008, Oprah is now offering on her Exum satellite radio program, The New Age Teaching, now this course in miracles, one lesson a day throughout the year, will be taught by Miriam, Miriam Williamson and completely cover the 365 lessons from this workbook. And for those who happen to tune in, Lesson number 29 will have you affirming, and I quote, God is in everything I see. Lesson 61 will have you repeat, I am the light of the world. And lesson 70 will take you even further by having you affirm, quote, my salvation comes from me. Warren Smith, who's written an interesting expose entitled Inventing, Reinventing Jesus Christ, Mention how so many authors and religious leaders and public figures are embracing the course in miracles. Now, one author that runs in this camp has already been featured twice on the Hour of Power with Robert Schuller, who gushes that this, this work is fabulous. What I found interesting is that along with this new era that they are propounding and promoting that will bring supposed world peace because it's going to unify everybody, is that basically the God of the Bible is done away with. And the Jesus who is being quoted is not the Jesus of Scripture. And that's exactly the devil's point. His greatest desire is to rob God of worship, to cease worship of the true and living Lord. And if he can do it in any way, in fact, he most often will not do it by telling you there is no such thing as Jesus. He will simply redefine Jesus. He will reinvent God. Neil Walsh, another proponent of this Course in Miracles, wrote in his own book published recently entitled The New Revelations. Get that? The New Revelations. And he says these words, and I quote him, The era of the single Savior is over. This is not new revelation. This is an old lie. Ladies and gentlemen, let me be the first to tell you, you are not God. I hate to pop your bubble. It's unpopular, but you're not him. Amen? Amen. Neither am I. Double amen to that. What a time. For us as sinners to reestablish our faith in the single Savior. And what a great time to take our Bibles and go back to the old revelation. (laughs) The old revelation. So would you take your Bibles and 
You never thought you'd ever hear me say this. Turn to the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, we're going to cover the first word. No, I'm teasing. We're (laughs) going to do more than that. (laughs) Now, last January, I told you that I would get through the book of Job in one year, and you didn't believe me, did you? But I kept my promise. I make no promises regarding this book here, okay? Just so you know, no promises. (laughs) In fact, we might be raptured before we finish it. So for those of you that don't believe in the rapture, you just finish it up on your own, okay? I'm trying to make friends in this first Sunday of January. I have come to the conclusion after studying so much of and reading so much of this book that the highest point of this revelation is the single Savior, Jesus Christ. So as, as we are tempted to, and we will do it, we will scramble through these pages looking at signs and bowls and trumpets and resurrections and judgments and wars and visions. Let us not forget that the grandest theme is Jesus Christ. The greatest subject of this book is Christ. The greatest treasure is the supremacy of, of Christ. It is built upon the profoundest thesis, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Above everything, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's how the book opens. Say the first five words with me. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, is this phrase to be interpreted as a subjective or objective genitive. It matters, subjective meaning this is revelation that comes from Jesus Christ. He is the one revealing this. Or is it objective? He is the one being revealed. And I ransacked everything I had in sight. And R.L. Thomas makes the interesting comment that both are true And they will be proven to be true, for Jesus Christ is both the source of revelation. He is the subject of revelation revealed. So with this in mind, I have outlined this book very generally. And I'll try to keep to it and not get lost here as we go through it. With four basic categorical phrases that will take us through this book. The first is the sovereignty of Christ in his church. The second is the severity of Christ in his chastisements. The third is the superiority of Christ in his coming. And fourth, the supremacy of Christ in his new creation. Now, as this old revelation opens, it answers without pulling any punches about seven or eight questions. We'll cover six or seven of them. Today, First of all, what is true revelation? Well, the answer is found in the meaning of, of the word. Revelation is the transliteration of the Greek word apocalypsis, which gives us our what word? Apocalypse. This is the apocalypse. It literally means this is the unveiling. This is the opening. This is which is now revealed, which was once covered. The mystery of the past is now revealed herein. 
Isn't it ironic? It struck me as ironic that the book of the Bible that actually means revealed and open is considered by most Christians to be the most mysterious and closed books of all. But you notice the book is not called the mystery of Jesus Christ or the puzzle of Jesus Christ. If you're clever enough, you can figure it out. It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It is the open book from and about Jesus Christ. Now, part of the confusion is is bound up, of course, in the approach to this book. And I'm going to very briefly touch on four major approaches and tell you where we're coming from and how we'll take this book. There are a lot of offshoots that I won't even mention. These four are the primary views. First, there is the preterist approach. This approach says that the book of Revelation is simply a book of history. It believes that, with a few exceptions, the events of the book of Revelation have already taken place. This uh, book was given to the church, I believe, around 94, 95, 96 A.D., somewhere in there. They believe that by the time the temple fell in A.D. 70, that that was the time when Christ returned. The trouble with that view is, of course, Christ didn't even appear. In addition, they leave no room to literally interpret the seals and trumpets and bowl judgments. And they have to overlook, in fact, the clear declaration that shows up in the very first paragraph that this is not a book of history. This is a book of prophecy. You can circle that word as it shows up in the very first few verses. The second approach to interpreting Revelation is the historicist approach. They believe that all of the prophecies have been fulfilled, but they have been fulfilled in these 2,000 years. This approach is, is interesting because they have to find historical connection to things and events that requires a very good imagination. They see the locusts referring to monks and friars. They see Muhammad as the fallen star. They see a, a goth warrior uh, represented in the first trumpet. They see Elizabeth I as the first bowl. They see Martin Luther as the angel of Sardis. They see Adolf Hitler as the uh, rider of the red horse, etc., etc. Fascinating approach which takes a great deal of imagination. Uh, the third approach is the idealist approach, which basically spiritualizes everything away and says it's just simply a collection of principles related between uh, in the struggle between good and evil. So it allegorizes the entire uh, events uh, of this book. It's just simply a spiritual conflict. Uh, the tribulation is, is just that internal conflict that you have. Uh, the coming of Christ is simply the coming of Christ to your heart, and not literally on the throne of David. The fourth approach, which is the one that we will take, is the futurist Approach. This view basically understands Revelation and takes it in its prophetic way as an account of actual future events specifically focused on the end of this age. We're going to take this book literally as we have taken the rest of the Bible. One author commented that this is simply the natural result of a straightforward reading of the book while the other three approaches are often forced to allegorize or spiritualize in order to sustain their interpretations. A literal approach, by the way, allows for symbols. 
And so we will see symbols as symbols. And that which is to be taken at face value, we will take at face value. Why? Because we interpret the prophets literally. We believe what they say will happen. We take them at face value. So it should be no surprise then that we would come to the book of Revelation and do the very same thing because half of the book of Revelation is simply Old Testament texts. Illusions, direct and indirect references to Old Testament texts is simply half of the book of of Revelation. What has been concealed in the old is now revealed in this book. One commentator mentioned, in fact several did, that of the 404 verses in the Revelation, 278 of them are Old Testament texts. Wilmington's survey of Revelation cataloged every one of them. I would not want his job, but I'm glad he did it. Let me just reference a few of them. He says this, there are 13 references to Genesis texts in the book of Revelation. There are 27 references to truth first revealed in Exodus, four from Leviticus, three from Numbers, 10 from Deuteronomy, one apiece from Joshua, Judges, and 2 Samuel, six from 1 Kings, one from both 1 Chronicles and Nehemiah, 43 from Psalms, two from Proverbs, 79 from Isaiah, 22 from Jeremiah, 43 from Ezekiel, 53 from Daniel, two from Hosea, eight from Joel, nine from Amos, one from Habakkuk, two from Zephaniah, 15 from Zechariah, and one from Malachi. It's just Old Testament texts that are given their proper revelation. Now, half of the problem for the interpreter is solved then if he will take the Old Testament literally as well as this book, taking it at face value. The first question, what is true revelation? It is this last word of prophecy. It is this capstone of prophetic revelation. We don't need new revelation. We need the old explained and understood. The second question is, well, what's it about? John writes in the first few words here, the revelation of either through or by or about Jesus Christ. It is this revelation by him, most importantly of him, that we will discover in this book. We will discover that he is the one who is and was and ever shall be. This is the old revelation which reveals the living Lord. In this book, he is Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 1. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, verse 5. He is the first and the last. There's an entire religious system called Jehovah's Witnesses that if they only understood, among other texts, that The first and the last is Isaiah's title for Jehovah. Jehovah is Jesus Christ. Revelation reveals that. He is the Son of God, chapter 2, verse 18. He is the one who searches the minds and hearts, verse 23 of chapter 2. He is the one who has the keys of David, chapter 3, verse 7. That is, he will inherit the promises to David. Literally. He is the one who opens the door that no one can shut, chapter 3, verse 7. He is the amen, chapter 3, verse 14. He is the faithful and true witness, 
Same verse. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah in chapter 5, verse 5. He is the root of David. He is the true one, chapter 6, verse 10. He is the holy one. He is the Lord, chapter 11, verse 8. He is the Christ or Messiah, chapter 11, verse 15. He is the Lamb, chapter 12, verse 11. He is the King, chapter 15, verse 3. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings, chapter 19, verse 16. He is the Word of God, chapter 19, verse 13. He is the Alpha and Omega, chapter 21, verse 6. He is the beginning and the end, chapter 22, verse 13. He is the bright and morning star, chapter 22, verse 16. And he is the Lord Jesus, chapter 22, verse 20. Each title is a revelation of redemptive truth. Let me reference a couple of them. He is called the Alpha and Omega. That is the first letter and the last letter of what? The Greek alphabet. First and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Carrying with that then the, the, the nuance of literature, the suggestion of literature, signifying that perhaps the very first letter of Revelation, which is Genesis 1, 1, the first word, to the last word of Revelation, is in fact the sum and substance which is Jesus Christ. He's called the first and the last, the title which carries the idea of history. This would mean that Christ is the crown of all of history. He's called the beginning and the end. These are references to time. He is both the beginning and the ending, meaning he is at both ends of time, so to speak. He is both the cause and the maintainer of time. He's called the first begotten. A reference to his resurrection in chapter 1. He's called the Lamb in chapter 5 and 26 other times in this book. That title speaks of his redemptive nature and power and fulfillment. He is the single Savior. He's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, which refers to his royalty. He's called the Root and Offspring of David. Meaning, he was before David, and he is a descendant of David. Only God could be that, the God-man. He is the morning star, chapter 22, which tells us he will usher in that eternal day. This entire revelation surrounds to exalt him. This is the old revelation, the truth from God. It is this, the carpenter of Nazareth is the king of the world. That crucified Jew is the God-man and the ruler of the universe. Who is the audience? Number three, for this revelation, John tells us God gave it to him to show to his bondservants. To further exalt and glorify his son, the father granted to a special group of people the privilege of understanding this book. And John describes those people here with this word translated bondservant, which in the Greek language literally means slave. And I agree with those authors who say the word shouldn't be weakened or watered down to suit our sensitivities or our tastes. It means slave, owned by another, given over to the whims and wishes and will of another. It was common in John's day for a person to sell himself into slavery and so serve in the temple to a pagan idol god. This 
is a reference to that. In Old Testament days, it also comes out of the text of the Old Testament culture during the celebration of Jubilee, when all the indentured servants of Israel were liberated and their debts were cleared away. If a slave so loved his master that he wanted to serve him for the rest of his life, he'd be taken to the doorway of the temple or the tabernacle and have his ear pierced and ringed, signifying that he was serving his master out of love and loyalty. This is in the mind of Paul when he referred to himself as the slave of Jesus Christ. This is who we are, who believe in Christ. We are his slaves out of love and loyalty. But those who refuse to acknowledge the mastery of Christ cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to them. They cannot discern them because they are of the Spirit of God spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2.14. So the unbelieving skeptic is going to consider Revelation a compilation of nonsense. Now they'd rather read something from the tabloid that to them makes more sense than the revelation of Christ. But for the believer who is willingly enslaved out of love and loyalty to Christ will understand and believe the prophetic truths about the future of the world. Now that doesn't mean that all the questions are going to be answered. But it means that we will take this book and trust our hearts to Christ who is revealed herein. Let's answer a fourth question quickly. How is the revelation communicated? Look at the last part of verse 1. He sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Now, isn't that dangerous? By an angel. Isn't that risky? Haven't we been warned about the gospel delivered by angels? I mean, spirit beings, angelic beings delivered the supposed truth to both Islam and Mormonism. Uh, This course in miracles came out of a spirit guide who said he was Jesus. But there are angels everywhere in this revelation. They are referred to 71 times. Someone made the comment that one out of every four references to angels in the Bible is in the book of Revelation. They're everywhere. So the next question is very important, and that's this fifth one. How is this revelation authenticated? How is it verified? How do we know it's true? Verse 2 tells us, by the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that John saw, you notice in there the threefold authenticating testimony of this gospel. By the word of God. In other words, the revelation is consistent with the rest of Scripture. So you compare Scripture with Scripture. You allow Scripture to define and expound on Scripture. Furthermore, the second validation is from the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this. The Apostle Paul did not warn people of hearing truth from angels. In fact, he didn't say that an angel couldn't deliver the gospel. What he did say and what he did warn us of in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 is this. That if an angel delivered to you another gospel, truth unlike that which you have heard from the apostles, be warned of them. Let that angel and those messengers be accursed. So what did the angel say about Christ What do all the religions today say about Christ? What does the Course in Miracles say about Christ? You are God. You are the spirit of Jesus. Jesus isn't a literal being. In fact, you are he. That is not what we read in 
the testimony of God in written scripture, the testimony of Jesus Christ in the revelation, and thirdly, this third verification, the eyewitness testimony of John. If, if this revelation, think of it this way, were brought into court and tried as to whether or not it were true, the defense attorney, which would be the Spirit of God, I assume in this analogy, would present the written testimony of God the Father. He would present uh, the testimony of God the Son, New Testament, words and works of Christ. And then he would bring to the witness stand this eyewitness named John. And you will hear John say throughout this revelation, this is what I saw. Look down at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet. Look down at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back. I, I saw this. Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Hurry. <laughs> Hurry. Then I, what? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He's given a tour. This is what I saw. Listen, 44 times in this revelation, John will effectively say, I can verify the testimony because this is what I saw. Now you take what he saw and you verify, but what God has written and what Christ has revealed, and they make this trinity of verification that this is true. It's interesting to me, there are people who have flatlined in the hospital on uh, the operating table or at some accident scene only to be revived sometime later to tell the incredible account of what they saw. My point is not whether or not they saw anything, but it is interesting and compelling. Why? Because they're telling you not what they heard. They're not telling you what they read. They're telling you what they believe they saw. Here is the most descriptive tell-all eyewitness account of heaven from any eyewitness who with passion and urgency, John will say, you need to know what I saw. And, and he is so excited. In fact, there are those that don't believe John wrote it because the grammar is, is somewhat jumbled at times and, and vocabulary changes. But those that understand this is, this is the writing down of what he saw. And he skips and he moves and he doesn't finish some sentences as he races. In fact, the word and appears over and over and over and over again. And I did this. And I saw this. And this happened. And this happened. And then this happened. Can't get it out quick enough. You won't believe what I saw. We're going to see in our study with eyes of faith what he saw. What is Revelation? What's it about? To whom was it given? Who communicated it to John? How was it verified? Number six, why should I study it? John goes on, look at verse three. Blessed, beloved, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is, is near. You know, this is the only book in the Bible that specifically promises blessing for all 
those who do these three things. Obviously, all of Scripture is inspired. It's all profitable. We're all commanded to not only hear it, but do it and believe it. But this one specifically says, those of you that read it are blessed. Obviously, a reference to the lector in the early church. That one in the synagogue and later the assembly who would stand and read the Scriptures in the public assembly. In the early days of the church, the limited number of copies of letters, these letters from the apostles were so limited, they demanded that they would be read to the public that didn't have what you have and I have in several different colors and different translations. Hardback, bonded leather, genuine leather, leather, calfskin, Kevlar, (laughs) NIV, KJV, and for the really spiritual, NASB. Amen? So I throw that in there. I have in my study at home a dozen Bibles. I also have on one of my bookshelves, my study at home, something that's very special to me. It is a notebook paper, and it's bound by glass, and it is handwritten Chinese characters written across it in neat lines. It is... It was given to me by missionaries from China. The sheet of paper is a page out of someone's handwritten Bible, or at least that text. Probably writing so fast, who wouldn't have it for very long. And that convicts me as I sit swimming in Bibles and commentaries containing the text of this book. I have 80 commentaries in Revelation. You have no idea what I'm holding back. I read 61 of them just for today. The Apostle John knew that his revelation was critical and he added the incentive of God's blessing upon all those who would do what we did today, who read the Scriptures. And I love to hear this assembly read together. The blessing extends not only to the reader but the hearer. Not just the hearer, but the doer. Notice, to those also who heed them. A reference to obey them, echoing the writings of James. He also gives the blessing for that one who will obey what he hears. James chapter 1, verse 25. So those who read it are given a special blessing, and then those who hear it and obey it. One more question, and we'll quit. Beyond a personal blessing, why does this revelation matter? Well, it was in the last part of verse 3 that I'll just camp out for a few moments. He adds this urgent point. Because the time is near. Now, if it was near 2,000 years ago, it's really near now. The word translated time doesn't refer to a clock or a calendar. It's the word kairos. It refers to epochs and eras and seasons. John is saying the epoch is at hand. The era, the next era in God's redemptive plan is at hand. It's near. The urgency of Revelation points to the return of Christ. 
And we will see this Savior who appears to John as the sovereign who returns with his triumphant church at the end of the book to set up the kingdom and enter ultimately the eternal state. Everything points to his literal return. Ladies and gentlemen, the era of the single Savior is not over. According to this revelation, it is in a way about to begin with greater majesty and might than you and I can even imagine. This single Savior says several times, this is the urgency of John as well, and as we learn it, I trust we'll be more urgent about the coming of Christ. He says, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Chapter 3, verse 11. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of this prophecy. Chapter 22, verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. Chapter 22, verse 12. Yes, I am coming quickly. Chapter 22, verse 20. And and John shouts at the end of the book, Amen! Come! Come on! You've been telling me? Now! Come on! And so we who understand and we who learn and we who sit at the feet of this revelator, John, and the one he reveals, Jesus Christ, we will also say what? Come on! Come on! We're waiting and we're watching. Ladies and gentlemen, don't ever forget, there were over a hundred prophecies about Christ's first coming when he was born, the God-man. Listen, everybody missed it. Except for a few men from Persia. Everybody missed it. There are over 200 prophecies related to his second coming, and I want to say, you don't want to miss it. By unbelief, to be the one in the robe washed white, to be the one reigning with Christ, you do not want to miss him because of unbelief. How do you find him? There is this old revelation which reveals him. This is the guidebook and the mystery revealed. And I want to say at the outset of our study, give me this old revelation that exalts and magnifies a single Savior. And you are not it. And neither am I. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen? Let me tell you, Mrs. Phoebe Knapp was a personal friend of Fanny Crosby, the great hymn writer that you are probably very familiar with. Phoebe Knapp was more of a musician, and she often provided the hymn tunes for some of Fanny Crosby's hymn texts. One of the most famous melodies she provided was to a hymn text that is entitled, Blessed Assurance Jesus is what? Mine. Blessed Assurance Jesus is Mine. What makes it really interesting to me is to discover that Phoebe Knapp was the wife of Uh, Joseph Knapp, who was the founder and president of the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. 
And she would one day say something like these words, it is a wonderful thing to have insurance for life. It is a far better thing to have assurance for the life hereafter. Hereafter. 